The good news is that racist and anti-racist are not fixed identities. I used to be racist most of the time. I am changing. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast. As I'm sure you do, everyone at Vintage stands in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And we know that a lot of you are turning to books for a deeper understanding of the conversation unfolding around us. We've been assembling a list of wonderful books by black writers for readers looking to support them and to learn more about systemic racism and black history. You can find that on our Twitter feed at Vintage Books. It's by no means a complete reading list, so we'd love to hear from you on what else we should add. Today, though, we thought we'd share with you two small extracts from a book Vintage published in 2019 by Ibram X. Kendi. Ibram is founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Centre at American University in Washington, D.C., where he is a professor of history and international relations. His previous books are stamped from the beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award in 2016, and The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Book Prize. His most recent book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, demolishes the myth of the post-racial society and builds from the ground up a vital new understanding of racism. What it is, where it's hidden, how to identify it and what to do about it. Here are two parts from the beginning of the book. The first is from the introduction and the second from chapter one. I wonder if it was my poor sense of self that first generated my poor sense of my people. Or was it my poor sense of my people that inflamed a poor sense of myself? Like the famous question about the chicken and the egg, the answer is less important than the cycle it describes. Racist ideas make people of color think less of themselves, which makes them more vulnerable to racist ideas. Racist ideas make white people think more of themselves, which further attracts them to racist ideas. I thought I was a subpar student and was bombarded by messages from black people, white people, the media, that told me that the reason was rooted in my race, which made me more discouraged and less motivated as a student, which only further reinforced for me the racist idea that black people just weren't very studious, which made me feel even more despair, or indifference, and on it went. At no point was this cycle interrupted by a deeper analysis of my own specific circumstances and shortcomings, or a critical look at the ideas of the society that judged me. Instead, the cycle hardened the racist ideas inside me until I was ready to preach them to others. I remember the MLK competition so fondly, but when I recall the racist speech I gave, I flush with shame. What would be Dr. King's message for the millennium? Let's visualize an angry 71-year-old Dr. King. And I began my remix of King's I Have a Dream speech. It was joyous, I started, our emancipation from enslavement. But now, 135 years later, the Negro is still not free. I was already thundering, my tone angry, more Malcolm than Martin. 
Our youth's minds are still in captivity. I did not say our youth's minds are in captivity of racist ideas, as I would say now. They think it's okay to be those who are most feared in our society, I said, as if it was their fault they were so feared. They think it's okay not to think, I charged, raising the classic racist idea that black youth don't value education as much as their non-black counterparts. No one seemed to care that this well-traveled idea had flown on anecdotes, but had never been grounded in proof. Still, the crowd encouraged me with their applause. I kept shooting out unproven and disproven racist ideas about all the things wrong with black youth. Ironically, on the day when all the things right about black youth were on display. I started pacing wildly back and forth on the runway for the pulpit, gaining momentum. They think it's okay to climb the high tree of pregnancy. Applause. They think it's okay to confine their dreams to sports and music. Applause. Had I forgotten that I, not black youth, was the one who had confined his dreams to sports? And I was calling black youth they? Who on earth did I think I was? Apparently, my placement on that illustrious stage had lifted me out of the realm of ordinary and thus inferior black youngsters and into the realm of the rare and extraordinary. And my applause stoked flights of oratory. I didn't realize that to say something is wrong about a racial group is to say something is inferior about that racial group. I didn't realize that to say something is inferior about a racial group is to say a racist idea. I thought I was serving my people when, in fact, I was serving up racist ideas about my people to my people. The black judge seemed to be eating it up and clapping me on my back for more. I kept giving more. Their minds are being held captive. And our adults' minds are right there beside them, I said, motioning to the floor, because they somehow think that the cultural revolution that began on the day of my dream's birth is over. How can it be over when many times we are unsuccessful because we lack intestinal fortitude? Applause. How can it be over when our kids leave their houses not knowing how to make themselves, only knowing how to not make themselves? Applause. How can it be over if all of this is happening in our community? I asked, lowering my voice. So I say to you, my friends, that even though this cultural revolution may never be over, I still have a dream. I still have a nightmare, the memory of this speech, whenever I muster the courage to recall it anew. It is hard for me to believe I finished high school in the year 2000 touting so many racist ideas. A racist culture had handed me the ammunition to shoot black people, to shoot myself, and I took it and used it. Internalized racism is the real black-on-black crime. I was a dupe, a chump, who saw the ongoing struggles of black people on MLK Day 2000 and decided that black people 
themselves were the problem. This is the consistent function of racist ideas and of any kind of bigotry more broadly, to manipulate us into seeing people as the problem instead of the policies that ensnare them. The language used by the 45th president of the United States offers a clear example of how this sort of racist language and thinking works. Long before he became president, Donald Trump liked to say, laziness is a trait in blacks. When he decided to run for president, his plan for making America great again, defaming Latinx immigrants as mostly criminals and rapists, and demanding billions for a border wall to block them. He promised a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Once he became president, he routinely called his black critics stupid. He claimed immigrants from Haiti all have AIDS, while praising white supremacists as very fine people in the summer of 2017. Through it all, Whenever someone pointed out the obvious, Trump responded with variations on a familiar refrain, no, no, I'm not a racist. I'm the least racist person that you've ever interviewed, that you've ever met, that you've ever encountered. Trump's behavior may be exceptional, but his denials are normal. When racist ideas resound, denials that those ideas are racist typically follow. When racist policies resound, denials that those policies are racist also follow. Denial is the heartbeat of racism, beating across ideologies, races, and nations. It is beating within us. Many of us who strongly call out Trump's racist ideas will strongly deny our own. How often do we become reflexively defensive when someone calls something we've done or said racist? How many of us would agree with this statement? Racist isn't a descriptive word. It's a pejorative word. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. These are actually the words of white supremacist Richard Spencer, who, like Trump, identifies as not racist. How many of us who despise the Trumps and white supremacists of the world share their self-definition of not racist? What's the problem with being not racist? It is a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. But there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, it is anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. 
The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. This may seem harsh, but it's important at the outset that we apply one of the core principles of anti-racism, which is to return the word racist itself back to its proper usage. Racist is not, as Richard Spencer argues, a pejorative. It is not the worst word in the English language. It is not the equivalent of a slur. It is descriptive. And the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. The attempt to turn this usefully descriptive term into an almost unusable slur is, of course, designed to do the opposite, to freeze us into inaction. The common idea of claiming colorblindness is akin to the notion of being not racist, as with the not racist, the colorblind individual, by ostensibly failing to see race, fails to see racism and falls into racist passivity. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism. Our Constitution is colorblind. U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Harlan proclaimed in his dissent to Plessy v. Ferguson, the case that legalized Jim Crow segregation in 1896, the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, Justice Harlan went on. I doubt not. It will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage. A colorblind constitution for white supremacist America. The good news is that racists and anti-racists are not fixed identities. We can be a racist one minute and an anti-racist the next. What we say about race, what we do about race in each moment determines what, not who, we are. I used to be racist most of the time. I am changing. I'm no longer identifying with racist by claiming to be not racist. I'm no longer speaking through the mask of racial neutrality. I'm no longer manipulated by racist ideas to see racial groups as problems. I no longer believe a black person cannot be racist. I am no longer policing my every action around an imagined white or black judge trying to convince white people of my equal humanity, trying to convince black people I am representing the race well. I no longer care about how the actions of other black individuals reflect on me, since none of us are race representatives, nor is any individual responsible for someone else's racist ideas. And I've come to see that the movement from racist to anti-racist is always ongoing. It requires understanding and snubbing racism based on biology, ethnicity, body, culture, behavior, color, space, and class. And beyond that, it means standing ready to fight at racism's intersections with other bigotries. This book is ultimately about the basic struggle we're all in. 
the struggle to be fully human and to see that others are fully human. I share my own journey of being raised in the dueling racial consciousness of the Reagan-era Black middle class, then right-turning onto the 10-lane highway of anti-Black racism, a highway mysteriously free of police and free on gas, and veering off onto the two-lane highway of anti-white racism, where gas is rare and police are everywhere, before finding and turning down the unlit dirt road of anti-racism. After taking this grueling journey to the dirt road of anti-racism, humanity can come upon the clearing of a potential future, an anti-racist world in all its imperfect beauty. It can become real if we focus on power instead of people, if we focus on changing policy instead of groups of people. It's possible if we overcome our cynicism about the permanence of racism. We know how to be racist. We know how to pretend to be not racist. Now let's know how to be anti-racist. I cannot disconnect my parents' religious strivings to be Christian from my secular strivings to be an anti-racist. And the key act for both of us was defining our terms so that we could begin to describe the world and our place in it. Definitions anchor us in principles. This is not a light point. If we don't do the basic work of defining the kind of people we want to be in language that is stable and consistent, we can't work towards stable, consistent goals. Some of my most consequential steps towards being an anti-racist have been the moments when I arrived at basic definitions. To be an anti-racist is to set lucid definitions of Racism, anti-racism, racist, anti-racist policies, racist, anti-racist ideas, racist, anti-racist people. To be a racist is to constantly redefine racist in a way that exonerates one's changing policies, ideas, and personhood. So let's set some definitions. What is racism? Racism is a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequities. Okay, so what are racist policies and ideas? We have to define them separately to understand why they are married and why they interact so well together. In fact, let's take one step back and consider the definition of another important phrase, Racial inequity. Racial inequity is when two or more racial groups are not standing on approximately equal footing. Here's an example of racial inequity. 71% of white families lived in owner-occupied homes in 2014 compared to 45% of Latinx families and 41% of Black families. Racial equity 
is when two or more racial groups are standing on a relatively equal footing. An example of racial equity would be if there were relatively equitable percentages of all three racial groups living in owner-occupied homes in the 40s, 70s, or better, 90s. A racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. An anti-racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial equity between racial groups. By policy, I mean written and unwritten laws, rules, procedures, processes, regulations, and guidelines that govern people. There's no such thing as a non-racist or race-neutral policy. Every policy, in every institution, in every community, in every nation, is producing or sustaining either racial inequity or equity between racial groups. Racist policies have been described by other terms, institutional racism, structural racism, and systemic racism, for instance. But those are vaguer terms than racist policy. When I use them, I find myself having to immediately explain what they mean. Racist policy is more tangible and exacting and more likely to be immediately understood by people, including its victims, who may not have the benefit of extensive fluency in racial terms. Racist policy says exactly what the problem is and where the problem is. Institutional racism and structural racism and systemic racism are redundant. Racism itself is institutional, structural, and systemic. Racist policy also cuts to the core of racism better than racial discrimination, another common phrase. Racial discrimination is an immediate and visible manifestation of an underlying racial policy. When someone discriminates against a person in a racial group, they are carrying out a policy or taking advantage of the lack of a protective policy. We all have the power to discriminate. Only an exclusive few have the power to make policy. Focusing on racial discrimination takes our eyes off of the central agents of racism, racist policy, and racist policymakers, or what I call racist power. Since the 1960s, racist power has commandeered the term racial discrimination, transforming the act of discriminating on the basis of race into an inherently racist act. But if racial discrimination is defined as treating, considering, or making a distinction in favor or against an individual based on that person's race, then racial discrimination is not inherently racist. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. Someone reproducing inequity through permanently assisting an overrepresented racial group into wealth and power is entirely different than someone challenging that inequity 
by temporarily assisting an underrepresented racial group into relative wealth and power until equity is reached. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. As President Lyndon B. Johnson said in 1965, you do not take a person who, for years, has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. As U.S. Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackmun wrote in 1978, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way. In order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. The racist champions of racist discrimination engineered to maintain racial inequities before the 1960s are now the racist opponents of anti-racist discrimination engineered to dismantle those racial inequities. The most threatening racist movement is not the alt-right's unlikely drive for a white ethno-state, but the regular American drive for a race-neutral one. The construct of race neutrality actually feeds white nationalist victimhood by positing the notion that any policy protecting or advancing non-white Americans towards equity is reverse discrimination. That is how racist power can call affirmative action policies that succeed in reducing racial inequities race-conscious and standardized tests that produce racial inequities race-neutral. That is how they can blame the behavior of entire racial groups for the inequities between different racial groups and still say their ideas are not racist. But there is no such thing as a not-racist idea, only racist ideas and anti-racist ideas. Thank you for listening to The Vintage Podcast. You've been listening to How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. If you're looking for some ways to respond as a book lover, you can donate to the Inclusive Indies Fund that we currently have linked in our social media bios. And I'm also leaving a link in the show notes to a list of ways you can support black writers, black publishers and black bookshops. We hope you join us in striving to read boldly and think differently. And until next time.